The Gateway brings you the day's news from the St. Louis region and across Missouri. It also includes stories from the Illinois side of the river and our Metro East reporter, Will Bauer. In Alton, in Belleville, in East St. Louis, in Edwardsville, in Cahokia Heights, at Scott Air Force Base, I'm Will Bauer, St. Louis Public Radio. Listen to reports from Will and all of our journalists weekdays on The Gateway, on the STLPR app and wherever you get podcasts. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. They're in litigation with their own students. If you attend in person, you'll pay this level of tuition. If you attend online, you pay this level. Most class actions, the only real winners are the lawyers. $550,000. There's something called the Educational Malpractice Doctrine. The students get $185 each. They violated that part of the Sunshine Law flat out. I can't fault people for gaming the system because quite frankly, as lawyers, that's what we do. I want to make absolutely clear. I think this is extremely shady. Like, it is extremely shady. I think this is kind of nuisance value. Uh, I, I think it was just a publicity stunt. Let's say that the city of St. Louis decided, you know what, we do need a black police chief. Joe Biden said, we need a black woman on the Supreme Court. Um, can't the city just say that? I'm Sarah Fenske. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. I know everyone is getting ready for the long weekend, but we have a lot to talk about before you do that. We're going to dig into some high-profile litigation involving the Sunshine Law. We're going to talk about some big jury verdicts. And we're going to talk about the city's settlement with its former interim police chief, Lawrence O'Toole. He says he was passed over for the permanent chief's job because he's white. Does his settlement suggest he had a decent case? Well, as you might have guessed from that cornucopia of cases, today is our legal roundtable. And after we introduce our panelists, we'll dive right in. And today, those panelists include Eric Banks. He's a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. Eric, welcome. Good afternoon. And we're also joined today by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor, both federal and uh, uh, county, city, now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Nicole, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, we're joined today by Dave Rowland. He is the Director of Litigation for the Missouri Freedom Center. Dave, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So we'll talk about former interim chief Lawrence O'Toole shortly. We'll talk about litigation around the state's former governor, Eric Greitens. But first, I want to talk about a matter that involves thousands of college students in Missouri, as well as their parents' bank accounts, and their bank accounts too, I'm sure. In recent weeks, Lindenwood University settled with students who filed suit over their pandemic-driven switch to online courses. The students said their education was, quote, subpar, in every way. Lindenwood ended up settling that suit for $1.65 million. Well, that brought to mind a similar lawsuit filed over a similar move to online courses at Washington University. That one got dismissed by a judge long before settlement stages. Those students got nothing. 
So what's the difference here? Was Lindenwood's sudden online pivot significantly worse than Wash U's? Or did this come down to different lawyers and different judges? Nicole, let's start with the case against Lindenwood. What's the legal argument there? So the legal argument in the case against Lindenwood was that it was a breach of contract with the students for their educational services. Um, And basically what they pled in the petition was that um, Lindenwood itself valued its online classes as lesser than in-person classes. So if you wanted to be an online student at Lindenwood, you could go for a lesser tuition price than if you went in person. And so the court kind of hung its hat on that and said, um, they value this differently. So when these students had to go online, they got a lesser value for their education. Hmm. Eric, do you see a big difference there with Wash U? I do. My understanding of the Washington U case is that it involved a single plaintiff as opposed to the Lindenwood case was a class action. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that certainly could be a big difference there. Um, do you think that was the difference there? So I can tell you what the court said. So the court actually addressed this. The court that um, issued the opinion in the Washington University case was aware of the, the opinion in the Lindenwood case. And they said, look, because the plaintiffs in the Lindenwood case actually pled that Lindenwood specifically valued its online program as lesser and a lower tuition, that that's what um, the Lindenwood case hung its head on. And Wash U didn't have, they didn't plead a similar difference in tuition. And that triggered the court to call into question this concept of educational malpractice. And so there, I had never heard of this before. This is interesting. There's something called the educational malpractice doctrine, which says that courts can't look into the reasonableness of education services. So if you provide me with two options for education, and I'm going to try to pick which one's more valuable than the other one, uh, the court is not going to get into weighing those uh, values of education. So the Wash U court found that because the plaintiff didn't actually have something tangible to compare online tuition versus uh, in-person tuition, that that forced the court to look into this educational malpractice, which the law prohibits the judge from doing. Now, is it really a distinction in cases? I think uh, Wash U probably did have a tangible program, and maybe it just wasn't pled. I'm not sure of that. Um, and, and Dave may- actually has a thought here on that. Sure. Uh, yeah. So as I read the cases, the the distinction there was that um, on Wash U's website, when they talked about online education, it was not part of the the regular undergraduate program. It was part of the professional and continuing education division. Um, And so the courses that were being offered uh, were not the same as were being offered in the regular uh, in-person program for for Wash U. Lindenwood, it appears, um, wasn't having the same distinction between the types of courses being offered. And they did distinguish between if you attend in-person, you'll pay this level of tuition. If you attend online, you pay this level of tuition. And that's how the judge in that case got around this idea of the court being responsible for making a a value judgment about the quality of the education being offered through these two different avenues. They said the court doesn't have to make that valuation because the university itself 
already made that valuation. And based on the university's own assessment of the tuition paid if you attend in person versus the tuition paid if you attend online, we can conclude that the services provided were not equivalent, therefore you survive a motion to dismiss. There's one thing I wanted to add there too, and it's that uh, I don't think that the decision in the Lindenwood case necessarily meant that the students were likely to win in the long run had the school decided to continue to fight. Uh, I actually think that, that there was a very reasonable chance that the school could have prevailed if they had continued the fight. Um, I'm not sure if it was school officials or if it was the insurer for the school that decided once they lost on the motion for summary, uh, rather motion to dismiss, that they decided they'd just go ahead and settle. It, it may have just been a financial decision or a decision about goodwill um, to say, well, we're just going to go ahead and, and have a settlement at this point. They're in litigation with their own students. That's a good right, point about exactly. goodwill. Yeah, $1.65 million. I mean, yes, I would certainly be happy happy to accept a check for such an amount, but this is not a huge settlement here. This is a very minuscule settlement, and in keeping with most class actions, the only real winners are the lawyers. It's um, a sad but true fact, and I can justify class actions. Class actions are based on the premise that no attorney is going to accept a case for $165 or thereabout. But if you aggregate a bunch of people with the same claims, then it is worth an attorney's while to take the case. That being said, the real winners in class action cases, both the defense side and the plaintiff side, are the lawyers. Yeah, I mean, in this case, the lawyers got $550,000. This is the lawyers bringing the Lindenwood case. The students get $185 each. Like, oh, that kind of hurts right there. I think that speaks to what you were speaking to, Dave. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Um, the one thing that I'll add, though, is is as a public interest attorney, I do think that there is a role for class actions in terms of setting precedents that then guide how organizations are supposed to act going forward. Um, so this spate of, of cases dealing with how universities handled the pandemic will be instructive in the future as far as how universities should approach similar circumstances. And so I do think that there is a, a general public value to the fact that these class actions have been brought, even though that value doesn't necessarily redound to the students or the, the plaintiffs mm -hmm. themselves. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Nicole, I want to go back to something you referenced, which is that the judge in the Wash U case was aware of the Lindenwood case, or have I just flipped that in my no, head? No, you got it right. The judge actually referenced the Lindenwood case in the opinion and, and specifically explained why, uh, and I don't remember if it was he or she, um, decided differently. And so that's interesting to me. Like, is that something a judge has to do? I mean, these are judges sort of sitting on the same bench. You know, they're both federal judges in St. Louis. If their colleague has decided something and they feel like maybe their colleague didn't get it right and it's a totally separate case, is it good practice for them to still acknowledge or to try to thread the needle so they can say, oh, this is different than that. I'm going to show why this is, you know, Lindenwood is not the same as WashU. Yeah. So I think the philosophical, there's like a philosophical reason and there's a practical reason. I mean, they don't have have to do it, of course. The philosophical reason is that you don't want people out there in the world thinking that uh, your case hinges on the luck of the draw of which judge you get. The uh, practical reason is also that those judges work on the same court and they're colleagues. And I think that they want to be able to get along. And 
also, you know, they have a, a combined goal of letting people know it's not the luck of the draw of the judge that you get. So I think, yeah, I think it was probably necessary to put that in there. It's interesting, this idea of it's the luck of the draw in the judge that you get. I feel like the more I read about some of these cases, the more I'm coming to this conclusion. Is this a cynical view? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but not necessarily untrue. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to give a, a little example here. This is another case that was in the news this last month. A federal jury in St. Louis awarded $47 million to a man who'd been harmed at an ammonium nitrate plant in Pike County. This guy is named Teddy Scott. Now gets $47 million from a St. Louis jury. What was so interesting to me is back in 2018, U.S. District Judge uh, Henry Autry tossed the suit entirely. It was only because they took this up to the Eighth Circuit. They were able to win a reversal of that. They come back. They now have this, what strikes me as an astonishingly large jury verdict. I mean, this could have gone either way, it seems like. And yet $47 million is a lot of money. You know, I really enjoyed reading the Eighth Circuit opinion on this. Um, when they basically reinstated, gave this guy a, a chance. Exactly. So so the thing is, is, is I think this was a really difficult issue of law that the court was having to deal with um, because Missouri courts have not been as clear as they might as far as the correct standard to apply. And so the district judge applied the standard that he believed to be correct. And the Eighth Circuit just kind of gently said, you know what, actually, we think this is the proper standard. And that's why they sent it back, um, which I think is the role of the appellate courts. Um, and, and I think what it reveals is judges at both levels that were working really hard to understand the way that Missouri courts apply these principles and then apply that in the federal context. Um, you know, and I think what it what it really highlights is that the law is not always perfectly clear. Um, there is some level of art and discernment that goes into it, especially when you're sitting as a judge. Um, and, and I came away from reading that Eighth Circuit opinion with just a great appreciation for the nuance and the thoughtfulness that the judges brought to that opinion. And there was even some disagreement on the panel. There was a dissenting opinion. But even that, I thought, was was well considered, even though ultimately I think that the majority got it correct. I love that I'm coming in like a cynic, and there's actually an argument for the wonder and, and the majesty of the law. This is why I love having Dave on the panel, as he can always find that bright spot there. Um, Nicole, just interesting to think about how these lawyers' lives are changed, this man's life has changed, $47 million versus nothing. Yeah, and I, you know, when it comes down to it, I think it's the right result. I mean, this man was obviously severely harmed by this cloud of toxic chemicals that was released, and apparently the company had done this multiple times before, or at least um, maybe not the exact same way, but had had environmental and toxic chemical issues in the past. And so I really do think in the end, it got to the right result. Now, I'm going to sound like a cynic because a jury verdict is just one small step in the negotiation process for a further settlement. This is a good point. This man is not getting a check for $47 million. Well, he may or he may not, but if he does, it'll be years from now. And many times a slow dime is better than a, a fast nickel is better than a slow dime. So certainly the settlement value of his case has improved astronomically as a result of a $47 million verdict. But that doesn't mean that um, at the end of the day he'll walk away with it. The judge may reduce it on remediator, um, may grant the defense a new trial, there's no telling what the Court of Appeals would do. This, um, so 
um, the settlement negotiations will still continue in spite of this verdict. Hmm. And so for this guy who's already been up to the Eighth Circuit and they gave him a new lease on life, does that give him a slightly better negotiating tactic? Because his lawyers are able to say, okay, we've already been to the Eighth Circuit. They said they said this case should go. They're not going to strike this down based on X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I actually think that the plaintiff is in a stronger position in two different regards. Um Yes, it helps that they've already been to the Eighth Circuit um, once on this. Uh, but the the issue in front of the Eighth Circuit in that prior um, opinion was one based strictly on law. It wasn't really dealing with the facts as established by the trial court. And uh, what listeners may or may not know is when a jury has found a set of facts, appellate courts are generally supposed to defer to those sets of facts. And so... In addition to the fact that the jury gave this award, the facts that the jury found are now going to be heavily influential on the outcome on appeal. So not only does he have this large judgment that the defendant is faced with paying out, potentially, um, they recognize that the appellate court may be an even tougher nut to crack than they were the first time around. That may put additional pressure on the defendant to find an amicable settlement. Yeah, I'm going to disagree a little bit in terms of um, when things go to the appellate court, they're specifically looking at one certain issue. So it could conceivably go to the appellate court on a completely different issue, and it won't make one hill a difference of what happened the first time. It's not like we sit, it's not like a court looks at it and says, yeah, the case is good all around. And now if you come back a second time, nope, we said it's good. It's only that one specific legal issue. So when it goes back to the appellate court, if it goes back to the appellate court, it really depends on what that issue is. Was there instructional error? Was there some kind of trial error? Was there something else? So um, it's not necessarily golden. And if you own this ammonium nitrate plant, Eric Banks, which I know you've always longed to own an ammonium <laughs> nitrate plant, and you know, you've know you got this, this $47 million verdict hanging overhead, you're going to try to find something. Oh, yes, I would. But also, I would instruct my attorneys at the end of the day, make this case go away. Yeah, settle. Um, make, make it go away for less than $47 million. And if you can do that, then I'll close my nose. But, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I would not want to continue to roll the dice on this case because, as Nicole has said, the courts of appeals heavily defer to the trial court on issues of fact. So the fact that the trial court, this decision was reached at that level, it's going to be hard to turn it around. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to discuss some litigation involving our former governor, Eric Greitens. Now, we know some of you may be fans of Eric Greitens or not fans of Eric Greitens. We're looking for legal questions um, involving these cases, involving Eric Greitens. But if you've got them, we're happy to hear from you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. 
Earlier this month, the appeals court from Missouri's Western District heard arguments over former Governor Eric Greitens' staff use of a disappearing text messaging app. It's called Confide. It allowed staff to exchange messages that vanish without a trace after being read. Attorney Mark Pedroli learned that no fewer than 27 of Greitens' staffers were using Confide, and he found they were using it for official government business. But he still ran into trouble. Cole County Judge John John Beatum dismissed Pedroli's suit, saying that Missouri's Sunshine Law only applies to government records that have been retained, while disappearing text messages cease to exist soon after arrival. And private citizens, John Beatum wrote, have no right to sue over them. Now, Mark Pedroli has talked about some pretty drastic consequences if Judge Beatum's ruling is allowed to stand. Dave, should we be concerned if this ruling gets upheld? Yes and no. So this is a situation, you know, I've, I've litigated Sunshine Law cases for years, uh, and I love the work that Mark does. Um, the, the question here is statutory interpretation. Um, and, and the challenge that I think uh, Pedroli and, and the plaintiffs have here is that the Sunshine Law only requires documents to be produced if they have been retained Mm. uh, or if they are being retained by a public governmental body. Now, there is a separate chapter of Missouri law that deals with when public records are supposed to be retained, but there are no penalty provisions built into that separate chapter. And so arguably, we're talking about two very different offenses. The offense of failing to retain public records in accordance with the one chapter, and then the failure to produce records that are retained under the Sunshine Law. Um, that's really where Judge Beatum drew the distinction in in his uh, trial judgment. And I suspect, although this would not be my favorite outcome policy-wise, I suspect the Court of Appeals is likely going to draw the same line and say, um, you know, if the records are not being retained by a public governmental body, then uh, they they are not disclosable or, or are not required to be disclosed. Wow. I mean, this seems like such a dangerous ruling, even though I can see. It needs a legislative fix, I think. Yeah. Nicole? So I had this old boss when I worked at the Missouri Attorney General's office. His name was Jack Morris, one of my favorite people in the whole world. And he used to say, this just doesn't pass the smell test. And I feel very strongly about this one. This just doesn't pass the smell test. So what I did actually when I was, you know, thinking about this case and preparing was I actually went through each you know, chapter of the, um, or each section, sorry, of the Sunshine Law. And I found a section I didn't know about before. So section 610.025 says, any public official who transmits messages about public business electronically must also send a copy of it to their office computer or to the custodian of records. Whoa! Which means... This Confide was not doing that. Confide is an electronic means of communication. So they violated that part of the Sunshine Law flat out. Nicole, I'm convinced. And I know that, obviously, I'm the person you need to convince on this. Never mind the Court of Appeals. <laughs> Dave, I know we're really putting you on the spot here because Nicole has found this this part of the law even she didn't know about before this. But any thoughts on on what she's she's outlined here? Um, if that's alleged in the petition, yes, uh, that that's a, a potentially profitable argument. I'm not sure it was alleged in the petition. Mm. Um, I don't think it was part of Judge Beatum's ruling. 
Um, and, and one of the aspects of Missouri law is that uh, courts are not supposed to grant judgments beyond what's alleged in the pleadings. So, so potentially this could be fruitful. Um, I think then the question would be whether the violation is knowing or, or purposeful. Um, and I've, I've had long experience with finding violations all over the place and the courts saying, yeah, but not knowing or purposeful, uh, which makes say, a difference for the attorneys. If even Nicole Gorofsky didn't know that was in the law, how <laughs> yeah, could they be expected yeah. to know? Except I found it in two minutes. Okay, so here's notice to Mr. Pedroli. Take another <laughs> shot at it. Yeah. Eric, uh, I'm going to ask you to sort of play Solomon here. I mean, we're hearing Nicole's argument. We're hearing Dave's argument. I'm being whipsawed. Well, well, keep in mind, the only reason why Solomon made sense was he was in the Bible. Because <laughs> if he really would have split that baby, um, there would have been, he would have been remembered differently in history. This, this is true. This but, would not have been a good uh, move. Yeah. Um, the governor's staff gamed the system. They said, well, here's the line. If we go over here and keep the records, then we have to provide it. But if we make it disappear, then we don't have to provide it. So as um, a citizen, I would like the records to be provided so we have a semblance of open government. But I can't fault people for gaming the system because, quite frankly, as lawyers, that's what we do. Now, um, I'm not a public interest lawyer. Sure. Um, I represent the people who pay me, and they're paying me to get the desired result within the law. This is what happened in this instance. There was a line. I don't think that what happened is that much different than a phone call. And if they would have, if the idea of it's an electronic transmission has to be reduced to writing, well, that would apply to phone calls as well. Because anytime somebody um, calls you up, we'll have to send myself an email right. so that there's a record of it. So I think that there needs to be a legislative fix, but I think that what was done was proper. So th there are two other things that I want to talk about, and, and one is kind of, you know, in the weeds, but I think it's important. Um, so the, the text of the statute that Nicole pointed out um, specifies that it applies to members of public governmental bodies. And then it goes on and says, the provisions of this section shall only apply to messages sent to two or more members of that body. Um, so that when counting the sender, a majority of the, the body's members are copied. Now, the reason why that's important is that uh, Missouri courts have recognized that there are some public public governmental bodies that are single member bodies. Usually this would be, um, you know, like the county coroner uh, or or um, a city manager. Recorder of deeds. Yeah. Arguably, attorney general would be considered a single member public governmental body. Um, the members of that staff would be employees of the public governmental body, not necessarily members of because they don't have individually any policymaking uh, mm. role. Um, so, so there are ways out of the applicability of this statute. But beyond that, um, Nicole talked about the smell test, and that's a very real thing that comes into play uh, sometimes when judges look at cases. Um, but I want to point out that it's really important that judges not apply that standard. Um, you know, it, it's important that judge apply the law, judges apply the laws as written, even if it might 
produce a result that they wouldn't necessarily think is is fair or correct as a matter of policy. Those decisions are supposed to be for legislative bodies to make, not for judges to make. And so I think we want to be careful, um, even when we might really prefer a particular policy outcome, not to encourage judges to do that because um, that gets away from the importance of having an impartial judiciary that simply calls balls and strikes. Nicole? So this is where I'm going to argue the opposite point, of course. The Sunshine Law itself says right in the statute that it's supposed to be liberally construed. So I think it actually does give the judge, you know, at least some ability to, when it's a close call, say, this doesn't smell right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and and to be fair, I'm asking the Missouri Supreme Court to take a case on this very point right now. We had a decision from the Court of Appeals uh, where we were arguing that if you construe the Sunshine Law liberally, it should lead to a particular result. Um, the the panel of the the Court of Appeals disagreed, and we think it's an important issue. So so I absolutely well take um, that point. I still think it's when when the language is as clear as I think this is, I think that's a harder uh, a harder argument to, to sell, though. So this is one case involving retention of mm-hmm. government, government records. There's another one. Um, this one involves former Attorney General Josh Hawley, now U.S. Senator. He was ensnared in this confide case in that it turns out his staff was on using this app and kind of gave Greitens' staff a pass for using it. Well, now he himself faces a lawsuit over alleged violations of the Sunshine Law. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee alleges that his office used private email addresses when corresponding with his paid political consultants. They did discuss official business, but because they were never stored on government servers, the attorney general's office says they are not public record. Quote, it's not disputed that the emails were related to public business, said an assistant attorney general um, in court uh, last week. But they are not public records. There was no retention here. Dave, is this the same kind of case where they've they found this loophole? I, I think it's a very similar case. And, and I want I want to make absolutely clear. I think this is extremely shady. Like it is extremely shady. And we do not want these loopholes that government officials can hide in. Um, and, and so I, again, as a matter of policy, I would very much like to see this changed so that it's clear you can't do this and there will be penalties that follow from trying to hide your communications from the public. Um, I think the challenge is, again, the law as written, and I'm not sure uh, that that they, the plaintiffs can get the result that they want with the law as written. Hmm. You know, here's a quote from Mark Pedroli, who fought that, is fighting that previous case involving Greitens staff. If we were to lose today, the governor of Missouri could step out on the front lawn of the governor's mansion with banker boxes full of documents and burn them. We would be powerless. This just seems, Eric, like there's a couple things where maybe the, the the letter of the law lets these guys get away with this, but th- this seems troubling. Well, while I respect Mark's legal acumen, um, and I respect his attempts at hyperbole and histrionics, nothing can be further from the truth. Those records that he is um, saying that the governor is going to burn on the front line or whatever. Um, they're they're stored. They're so those are retained. Yeah, you you think he's gone a bit too far with that rhetoric? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, speaking of going a bit too far, let's talk a little bit more about uh, former Governor Eric Greitens. He was supposed to be in court today for his child custody proceedings. Um, his ex-wife, Sheena Chestnut Greitens, has alleged he was abusive to her and to the kids. He has suggested her allegations are a vast RNC-fueled conspiracy against him. We were all looking forward to eavesdropping on these hearings today. Instead, now the case file says the hearing set in Boone County has been continued after, quote, notice of mediation compliance was filed by Eric Greitens' attorney. Nicole, what does that mean? I mean, it might mean they're working at, sorry, it might mean they're working on a settlement. Okay. Uh, noti- notice of mediation compliance may mean that they're working on a settlement. They're taking this behind closed it, doors. It could be. Okay. Well, so Eric Greitens, meanwhile, he keeps talking about Carl Rove's phone records. He has been trying to get these because he claimed that they would show this conspiracy with his ex-wife, and that's why she's gone public with some of these things. It turns out he actually dropped his request to get Carl Rove's phone records weeks ago, and yet he continues to keep sending fundraising emails. In these emails, this is an actual quote from these fundraising emails, a circuit judge granted us access to phone records exposing Mitch McConnell and Carl Rove for who they truly are. That's after he dropped all requests for Carl Rove's email. Could these kind of statements in a fundraising email come back to haunt him in court, Eric? I hope and pray so. I mean, legally, uh, Dave, is there any chance a judge is going to look at this and and be like, look, you're not even asking for these records. How can you claim I'm doing this? I'm trying to think of of the claim that would be brought, and I can't think of a successful one. Now, uh, I'm also on record as as having a very dim view of defamation lawsuits, especially when they involve uh, public officials. We, We want there to be a robust conversation. Uh, about our our politicians or would be politicians, um, but, but at the same time, I would hope that the that the voting population would learn that uh, they should not trust uh, statements that that politicians make about uh, what's happening in the courts because quite frequently um, those statements are completely inaccurate, perhaps even willfully so. But just because they are not truthful doesn't necessarily mean they fall outside the protection of the First Amendment. Um, So I think that this should be an opportunity for voters to educate themselves, um, for for those of us who talk to voters, uh, to make clear that they need to um, investigate more thoroughly uh, the claims that are made and to punish uh, politicians who lie to them. Uh, but but whether they will take that advice, whether they will that learn that lesson, uh, maybe we're only going to find out in August or November. Beyond the voters, though, and beyond the idea of a defamation claim, doesn't this speak to his veracity in this case? Like, is this something that, that could be used to, to impeach him? Sure. Absolutely. And and so it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that he dropped the subpoena against Rove. He actually got a subpoena against his wife for her or his ex-wife, sorry, for her messages. And it showed there weren't any messages with Carl Rove, Mitch McConnell, um, any of the other people I think he was accusing her of conspiring with. Even the AP journalist that, that he accused her of conspiring with. No right. messages there. So, um, he's, so it's really untrue. The problem is for a defamation lawsuit, it has to be more than just untrue. It has to be stated publicly, which we meet that element too, but then there has to be um, some kind of damages to a person who has standing to bring that case. And so I think that's what um, we're alluding to here, that it's a problematic defamation case, but it certainly speaks to his veracity. 
We do need to take a quick break. Coming up next, we'll discuss a racial discrimination filed by St. Louis's former interim police chief. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. The city of St. Louis in this past month settled with Lawrence O'Toole. He's the city's former interim police chief. He gained some notoriety in 2017 for announcing the police owned the night. That was after a night when they rounded up nearly 100 people in mass arrests. Those arrests have led to dozens of lawsuits. Some settlements have even come out of that at this point. O'Toole himself sued, and he sued after being passed over for the chief's job. The city has now settled that case. Um, The Post-Dispatch reports that he'll get $25,000 for legal fees, just over $76,000 in back pay for retroactive raises he would have received if he'd been promoted to chief, $60,000 for the emotional pain and suffering of not being named chief. His pension will also reflect the salary he would have earned as chief. He says he was passed over because he's white. Public director, uh, public safety director Jimmy Edwards allegedly told him if Jason Stockley didn't happen, all the protests around that acquittal, you would have been the police chief. Based on this settlement, Nicole, is the thinking that he had a decent case? I don't necessarily think so. I think this is kind of nuisance value. Um, And what we consider uh, as nuisance value means attorneys thinking out what is it going to cost them to defend this case. I think an interesting part of the settlement is that um, O'Toole has to retire and he has to retire as of this weekend. And so, um, or maybe that was last weekend, I apologize. But yeah, I think it's I think it's a nuisance value case. The city paid him. This goes away. He goes away. Yes. Dave, any thoughts on that? Um, I think that Nicole and, and probably Eric are, are better judges of, um, you know, the, the settlement aspect and what it means. Um, I will say that um, these are difficult cases to win when you're, you're claiming racial prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the, the valuation of the settlement probably hinged on uh, whether they thought a jury would believe that Jimmy Edwards actually said this and also whether Jimmy had enough knowledge of the decision-making process that that could be trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if they really felt like um, the chief could, or rather not the chief, but uh, O'Toole could prove uh, that there was racial discrimination, maybe there would have been a bigger settlement or a harder fight. Uh, I, I think that it's certainly reasonable to conclude that uh, maybe this was just trying to make the problem go away. You know, it's interesting in this case, even if Jimmy Edwards said this, which I think it's possible he said this, if Jason Stockley didn't happen, you would be the police chief. To me, that doesn't necessarily prove racial animus. It's not saying we can't have a white chief. It could be saying, hey, the city's up in arms. We're paying attention to racial inequities. We need a chief who who has a history of paying attention to this versus mass arresting protesters. Would that be defensible on the part of the city? Yeah, I mean, agreed. It doesn't necessarily show racial animus. It also doesn't necessarily show um, that that was really what the employment decision was based on. I think there's a real uphill battle here to say that that quote in itself is a employment discrimination claim. 
Here's something else I wonder about. Let's say that the city of St. Louis decided, you know what, we do need a a black police chief. It's Joe Biden said, we need a black woman on the Supreme Court. Um, Can't the city just say that? Yes and no. Um, So there are, if we're talking about a situation where um, the the person making the ultimate decision um, just gets to use their discretion, like the president naming a member of the Supreme Court, um, then they can really literally name whoever they want. And, and there's no um, constitutional issue that comes into it. But, but when you have a process that is set up to consider multiple uh, candidates, uh, what you would have to do basically is say, we, we need to nominate or, or choose a, uh, an African-American um, chief because we are trying to remedy past discrimination. Um, you could do that if you set it up that way. Yes, but you would have to be really clear. Okay, here is the evidence of the past discrimination. Here are the consequences fro- that have flowed from it. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need to be able to make this appointment um, that, that is race conscious. Uh, it is sometimes a difficult pill to swallow for government entities, especially police forces, to admit past racism. Um, and and so I'm not sure that the powers that be would be willing to make that kind of an admission, um, even if it meant that they might theoretically uh, get past the, the bar that you need to, to make an expressly race-conscious decision when it comes to this kind of a hire. Do you see mm. what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Well, uh, Lawrence O'Toole gets his money. Um, the city gets him off the police force. Maybe this is a, a win-win. Um, here's another case. This past month, the state of Missouri uh, lost a case. Missouri Lawyers Weekly calls it a shockingly large verdict, $20 million. This was won by Susan McGraw. She's a St. Louis University law professor. She's also sometimes a panelist on this roundtable. The KC Star reports that a federal jury awarded $5 million each to four different women who alleged they were sexually abused by a guard at the Chillicothe Correctional Center. That's a a Missouri-run prison. The AG's office defending this guard had flatly denied the allegations. Their lawyer told the jury the case was one of, quote, who you believe. They stressed the women all knew each other. They also stressed that they had convictions for crimes of dishonesty, things like forgery and fraud. These cases can be really hard to win. I think women could could tell you that. Particularly here, we have a case of women who are in prison. Eric, are you surprised that we saw such a big verdict in this case? Yes, I am. The verdict in this case on the western side of the state, along with the verdict on the eastern side of the state involving the chemical company, causes me to rethink my prejudice that the big verdicts are only limited to state courts. Hmm. Historically, plaintiffs would prefer to be in state court. Defendants would do everything humanly possible to remove the case to federal court. But there seems to be a shift, and it seems to be that the Courts are leveling out in terms of their decision-making. Certainly, it's a wider jury pool for the federal courts as opposed to the state court. But I think that the traditional stereotypes and prejudices that attorneys like me have have to be rethought because there are big verdicts that are being rendered in federal court. 
That's interesting. Nicole, do you think on some level this might speak to a change in, in how we think about women making these kind of a, accusations that Me Too has finally maybe penetrated the consciousness of, of jurors? I so much want to think that. And um, I so much want to agree with that. But I'm not so sure. I think that some of the facts presented in this case um, were pretty damning against the warden in that um, she, uh, she was warned ahead of time a couple of, I think even more than once and more than one way uh, that this kind of sexual abuse was happening in her prison and um, I think that is part of what drove the large verdict here if I had to guess I didn't watch the trial of course Um, and so I think that sometimes when you have a situation like that where someone's warned and then it is is deliberately indifferent which they had to prove in this case I think that can drive a much higher verdict because they think that somebody failed to do their job Hmm, that absolutely makes sense well we're happy for Susan and and for these women I mean this this seems like something that could be life-changing here's a lawsuit that may not be life-changing but is certainly of interest into people who care about city politics four st louis aldermen filed suit over prop r that brings new conflict of interest rules bars people from lobbying the board too soon after they leave it um, one of the aldermen in the lawsuit has since resigned seems to be under some sort of cloud but there's still three plaintiffs bringing this thing and this seems really complicated dave roland what's your sense of whether they might have a chance to strike down prop r well, let me say I, I tried to find the petition in this case so I could understand exactly the arguments that they're making, and I wasn't able to find the petition. Um, so so I can't address that. But what I can say is that there is definitely room for a court to say that Prop R uh, was not properly passed. And um, it could go in a couple of different ways. You know, there was a, a disagreement a few years back uh, when then city councilor Julian Bush, who's also a former St. Louis city judge, um, expressed an opinion that if you're going to have a uh, change to the city charter, first there has to be an ordinance put forward that puts the the proposed change on the ballot. Uh, in other words, he was saying that that the initiative process does not allow you to go directly to the ballot. Mm. What the initiative process does is it proposes uh, the change via ordinance, and then the board of alder persons has to put that uh, on the ballot for a vote. So essentially, it has to go forward twice, is what uh, former Judge Bush said. Um, but I think that there's even a, a different argument to be made there. The Missouri Constitution gives um, counties and certain cities the ability to adopt a charter form of government, and it prescribes how you amend a charter uh, when a city or a county has done that. But St. Louis City is unique in that it's treated as both a city and a county, and the Constitution sets up a separate provision to govern when Uh, and how amendments to the charter can be made. So although a charter city expressly has the ability to have the citizens put an initiative petition out there to amend the charter, Article 6, Section 32B of the Missouri Constitution does not include that option when it comes to the city of St. Louis. So, So this provision that expressly addresses how the city of St. Louis can change its charter only says that it can be done by uh, the board of uh, of alder persons, or, or rather the the legislative department for the city. Yeah. Um, and so, 
I and and again to be clear, I am wholeheartedly in in favor of citizens being able to amend their their foundational documents. Absolutely, but the way that our state constitution is constructed, it's just not clear that the the city of St. Louis voters actually have the authority they tried to exercise in Prop R. Um, so I don't know if that is a claim that has been raised by the plaintiffs here, um, you know. But but if they were to raise that claim, um, I think that there's a reasonable chance that they could succeed on this. Wow. Well, once again, the great divorce, the city being its own county, has has come to make things complicated and problematic for people trying to push reform in St. Louis. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We have just two minutes remaining here. I gotta squeeze in Mark McCloskey. You guys know this is like a rule. I have to talk about this this noted trial lawyer every time the legal roundtable convenes. He found a way to get himself in the news again this month. Uh, He and his wife pled guilty to misdemeanors. Their law licenses were suspended those suspensions were stayed. Well, they were put on probation for a year. They were ordered to do 100 hours of pro bono legal services. They were supposed to do it to organizations that provide free legal services for poor or indigent Missouri residents. So that's all the context here. Well, in this past month, Mark McCluskey wanted to donate his services to the right-wing media group Project Veritas. The Office of Disciplinary Counsel said no. He took his request to the Missouri Supreme Court. They turned him down, too. Eric, is this a rank injustice? Yes. No, it's not. No, it is not. The um, the disciplinary commission, the um, Supreme Court, they did the right thing. Um, Mark has to know that he had no chance of that application being approved, and this is just some grand publicity stunt. And if I wasn't so afraid of a slap suit, I'd tell you what I really think. <laughs> So Mark said, well, we'll see how many conservative constitutional organizations I can volunteer for and be denied the right to by the Supreme Court and its bar association. Dave, it sounds like he's just going to keep coming and coming and we're just going to have to keep talking about this. Uh, Yeah, uh, well, I I wholeheartedly affirm what Eric said. Uh, This was just a publicity stunt. Um, and, And coming from a public interest law firm, uh, that that deals with constitutional issues that and people frequently call us conservative. Um, I mean, there are groups out there that he could have chosen to offer services to. Uh, Project Veritas doesn't provide legal services at all. So uh, again, he knew from the outset this was never going to pass muster. Uh, I, I think it was just a publicity stunt. And sadly, it worked. Here we are talking about him. I don't know if he's going to get some voters from this. We should mention he's running for U.S. Senate. People may be torn on whether to vote for him or Eric Greitens, but this has been an illuminating discussion today. (laughs) I want to thank all the members of our our legal roundtable. Dave Rowland, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Dave is the Director of Litigation for the Missouri Freedom Center. Uh, Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And Eric Banks of Banks Law, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.
Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.